Mark podcast show and I'm talking today to Andy McGrath who is a cryptozoologist and author of Beasts of Britain and I think he's recently been on some tours and various shows. Hello Andy, how are you? I'm very good Mark, how are you doing? I'm fine. Um, yeah, can you tell me about what you've been doing recently? So um, I've been Bob in the USA uh, for the last couple of weeks and uh, I went over there on the um, 1st and 2nd of um, September to speak at Lauren Coleman's International Cryptozoology Conference, which was loads of fun. Uh, so he was there, obviously, Lauren, and uh, Jeff Meldrum spoke, and Todd Dissertel, and Crypto uh, Gwen, and uh, Alexander Pedicol from Small Town Monsters on the Trail of Champ documentary, as well as like, loads of great guys. Uh, you know, I really learned a lot. So I was two days there in Maine, uh, in Portland, Maine, and um, then I, I drove down to uh, Lake Champlain with Katie Elizabeth, the, the Champ lady, as she's uh, referred to. That she'd been up there, I think, for eight years uh, or so on the lake, lives there now. And she took me for the, following me through her routine, you know, how she, all the places she goes to look for Champ, where she's had results, how she looks for echolocation, and the different theories that she's got. So that was really nice. And then back on the plane and down to Kentucky for Crypticon. Uh, and that was with uh, two of the final different guys were there, James uh, Faye and Cliff Barrickman, Travis Walton, David Polides was there, Linda Godfrey, I'm a big fan of, um, Ronald Murphy, tons and tons of people. It was a really lovely, lovely time. Um, I spent there with those guys too and, and home, so it was... Uh, it was uh, 12 days, I think, altogether. Nine flights in total, as I did <laughs> in the time. So there was a few other sort of places I dotted around to, and it was it was an eye-opening experience to see how the Americans do their conferences of this you know this type of genre, cryptozoology and paranormal and things like that, and also to be you know a full week with a, a full-time lake monster researcher and, and see how she does it. Can you tell people a bit about your book, Beasts of Britain? Yeah, well, Beasts of Britain, my book, it's almost a year old. It'll be a year old on October 17th. And I started writing it because, um, there were two reasons. One, a friend had challenged me um, to prove that there were more cryptids in the UK, or unknown animals, than messy. You say, all, all you've got there is an essay and I don't believe there's anything else. Like, you know, I've been into cryptozoology for so many years and collected so many stories. I started putting stuff together for, for him. And I also hit 40, so two years ago now. And um, my wife said, look, you know, you work in London all week. We've got two kids and, um, you know, you're just, you're just uh, bored. You know, this is your whole life. Why don't you, like, get a hobby? Why don't you make something out of this monster thing? That's what she calls it. Make something out of this monster thing. Maybe, like, like, write some blogs or do something. And it all kind of started to pull together. Like, I first tried to make a TV series from the beginning, actually, and realized I didn't know anything about it or anybody to do with it. And then somebody said to me, well, actually, you need to write a book first because then if you pitch a TV series off of that, you've got more standing, you've got more uh, protection. I said, oh, well, that, that sounds better, you know, I've been a singer now for 30 years, songwriter, well, you've written songs, maybe you can write a book. So, you know, 
as I do, <laughs> I foolishly just jumped in and started writing it. And um, uh, published the CFC originally, who uh, John Danzo, who got to publish it. And um, went all the way through, and releasing little blogs and chapters along the way from the book as I was going along. And then when it came time to publish it, unfortunately, John and the guys had a six month backlog and they couldn't do it. And I said, well, it's okay, so I'll just stick it on Amazon and see what happens. You know, it's the same sort of deal. Um, and it's worked out okay, you know, I'm sort of sticking with it and I'm, I'm actually working on my second book now, uh, which is called Beasts of North America. So I'm, same title, I'm moving it around and planning to, to take it around the world. Well, most people, when they perceive Lakemans, as you say, they always say Nessie because that's the only one they've really heard about. But like you said, there's so many more in the UK. It's a good way of actually um, doing a little bit of travelling as one of cryptozoology if people were interested in, like when they read the book, they could sort of visit the areas that you discuss. Many of the areas are listed in there, as well as the different chapters, which feature only a couple of sightings of each type of cryptid and, and some theory on, on what they are or, you know, the background surrounding it, which, um, you know, although well investigated, is particularly my, my own series. Um, there's a, a section at the back which is called a piece of a collection, which is literally, you know, uh, just a list of every single uh, British Bigfoot, Dogman, uh, Little Person, uh, Flying Cryptid, uh, Big Can, uh, and Lake Monsters and Sea Monsters, of course, which is my, my favourite sighting in the country. Um, and especially the big protection of people being very into that. Of course, you know, it's, it's a controversial, uh, controversial subject for some as well. Um, but of course, when I started the, the late monsters, that was my, my big love. So that's how I started the book. And, and that's the first part of that section too, late monsters and sea monsters, of which, you know, Britain has many. Um, it reminded me of the books of Carl Schuchers that I, I really loved when I started researching that subject again. And, Remind me of Paul Harrison's uh, Lake Monsters and Sea Serpents of the British Isles, a wonderfully put together book, as well, and some of the others who've written extensively uh, on the subject, uh, Dental Michaels and, and others, it really got me back into their books and back into researching what we have, and um, we have a lot. And my main purpose started as a, you know, trying to do something interesting with my my decade of the 40s and it's turned into more um, from the discipline point of view anyway more of actually you know we're always looking to other places in the world and it's easy for us to imagine if there's a yeti in the himalayas or there's a monster in Lake champlain but when it comes to our own land we find it very difficult to conceptualize at home and Let's have a look. Let's look at the witnesses that size them up and see what they're offering in terms of sightings. And there are lots of really interesting, matter of fact, run-of-the-mill sightings, but of extraordinary creatures all around our island. We've had a recent one recently. I know it's not an extraordinary creature, but it's a creature not native to our land. Is the beleaguered whale in the, the yes. tent? Yeah, I mean, um, that's... Uh, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a great one. I really like that these things turn up in the Thames now again. So you probably remember 2006, I think there was a pilot whale that 
came into the Thames, it went too far and it, it, it died, unfortunately. And, and also, was, was this last year or was it earlier this year? I can't remember now. The Thames Dolphin, could have been this year, um, that came in and got stuck near Battersea, just facing where I was working at the time. And um, so it can be a treacherous water um, for some animals. I am very excited about the blue globe, but I've basically. Um, I've followed the news reports and I've stayed away, you know, I'm not taking a boat out of the water, so staying away from the whale, and there's plenty of great footage on BBC News that you can you can catch, you can't really see much from the shore anyway, and uh, it's amazing, it seems to be doing well, it's feeding in the estuary, these creatures that are used to sort of going up rivers as well, which they do quite often in their natural habitats, and it's supposed to be a juvenile uh, of some kind, but not a baby, and it's... It's of course, and uh, still with us, you know, five days later, who knows how long it's going to stay. But, uh, I, I, as you say, because a lot of people think cryptozoology is always about the big monsters or whatever, but also it's also about finding new animals as well. Yeah, um, and in the piece of British book, actually, not only is, uh, do we just talk about unknown creatures that may be living in British Isles, but there's also uh, a section for out-of-place animals, like big cats or the wallabies that have made their home here. There's a section called Beasts in Our Backyard, about animals that have made Britain their home successfully. So, and, uh, you know, and now becoming more part of the local fauna, you know, things like the grey squirrel and the uh, Canada goose and um, the Chinese mitten crab and Zenopus toads and snapping turtles and all kinds of things like that that's slowly spreading throughout the country. And uh, uh, so it's interesting, you know, that there are other things unknown or, let's say, out-of-place animals that are also here on island. Um, of course, the deer, that's a big subject, isn't it? The uh, seeker deer and the... Um, the water deer and the, the munchak and all the rest of them that are some of them very um, problematic species and others are filling up our countryside and uh, making it a more interesting place you know, for better or worse. I will see, you've got a, a morning chorus one that you have um, the ringneck parakeets. We, well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm in Surrey, so um, we've got lots of those here actually now, but regularly see them when I'm walking along the Thames or in one of the local parks or regularly see those guys flying around you can always they've got a very distinctive call you can always hear their approach they're flying tend to fly in groups of two or three I've noticed um, I don't know if that's uh, behavioural or not they're very pretty they're very nice now when I lived in um, Barcelona in Spain years ago there was a similar kind of parakeet there that existed there in the thousands and they used to call them the local government because Four thirty every morning, they'd wake up and start chattering, and you know the whole city woke up with them basically. <laughs> um, I'm sure they still got them there. You know, they're very, they're very productive animal. I, I think even the ones we have were from a few pairs that were supposedly uh, escapees from Pinewood Studios. That's the rumor. That's the alleged history behind them. That they got out and and they um they made go of it. So I always find it fascinating, like you said, about the invasive species. I, I know in America there's a lake that's full of fish. I can't remember which lake it is. And it's so full of them, they fly over the boats and whatever. Oh, yes. It's uh, oh, what is that? Is it a bass of some kind. I don't know. It's, yeah, they will literally, they can knock you out of your boat. It's the noise that disturbs them and they've got a defensive 
tanks and, and um, cruisers and jump out of the water, you know, get disturbed. Um, now, do, do you think that cryptozoology will become a recognised science? Um, I don't think so, really, to be honest with you. This is what I think will happen, is that every time something that cryptozoology is chasing becomes a recognised animal, it will just leave the realms of cryptozoology and become a normal part of um, zoology, a normal uh, study of, of animals. One great example of this is the giant squid, of course. I was just joking to somebody the other day that yeah, that was the kraken, right? <laughs> so many years that was a kraken. And then suddenly, you know, there's more established wash-ups of these animals. There's actual footage of them in their natural habitat. It was a Russian ship or some in New Zealand, or I don't know, if it was a Kiwi ship or a Russian ship, pulled up a colossal squid. It was 25 feet long and it's on camera, and now we can all see it. We're like, well, meh, you know, whatever. Giant squid, cool, great. But that was the Kraken, you know, um, from 100 years ago. There was no. There was no evidence for it. If you spoke about experiencing one, you were. Imaginative, like these old sailors seeing the sea serpents in New York and uh, telling a fisherman's tale, you know, or you could be discredited. Um, and I think it's a good lesson that what's often done or what's seen by unrelated corroborative witnesses, uh, witnesses who corroborate the same descriptions can be taken, um, at least as being accurate in this description. Um, and another lesson that, you know, we shouldn't poo-poo everything that people claim to see out there. You know, of course you have to evaluate validity of witnesses, but um, people don't generally put their, their head on the chopping block like that, especially not professional people, when they know it's going to cause them some difficulty. Um, there was this, this wave or whatever, some sort of stationary hump and lock this recently wasn't there, that was um, supposedly seen by a London doctor and he photographed it and it just looks like a bit of a bump in the wave. But what was really significant to me about it is that he insisted that he saw it stationary that stayed there and looked like the neck or the back of the animal and then it sunk for about a minute. Now, he's a doctor in a London hospital. No, um, I'm sure the sun or the stars 200 pound reward isn't going to really impress him enough to put his career on the line. Uh, he could be mistaken, but you know he's a, he's a, he's been trained to observe as part of his career. And I work with doctors <clears throat> have been for many years because my my um, my day job is in private medicine, so. Yeah, I know that they're trained to be accurate, to take responsibility and really look at what they're uh, seeing and make an accurate observation of it. And so he comes and he says to the people, this was like a creature that I saw. This was a big back or a neck of some kind. And even though the picture is rubbish, I think his testimony should account for something because he's got to risk ridicule, he's going to risk discreditation of some kind amongst his peers or his patients, and oh yeah, that's the doctor who said Nessie's real. You remember that, that wave photo, he claimed that was Nessie. But what you get from his sighting and his revealing it, it's like a trauma-based um, 
reaction where the person cannot unsee what they've seen. You know what I'm talking about? That you can't unsee it. So they often give like these silly random details that you don't need to know about. Um, so it might stop something like, I was just driving down the road and I noticed that the street light was out. Normally, you know, it's it's always working. I've never noticed that before. And then I saw this creature where I had my pink shirt on that day. I don't normally wear details that you and I we don't need to know about. But because it's part of the experience, the trauma, they have to include it in their story. It's part of their story to them for forever. And so these things stand out to me. The doctor that risked his reputation recently, or, you know, the lady in the small village who says she's seen Bigfoot, and yet, you know, she's never told a lie in her life, she's never made up a story, she's just one of the, the community that's always lived there, that kind of thing. That's what I'm looking for when I'm looking for these animals and the people who see them. Yeah, but it's like you said, I've always think there's a big connection between, when we look at ley lines, between UFOs, cryptids, and paranormal. I think they're all interlinked in some weird and wonderful way. I mean, I don't, I don't have an opinion about that myself. My suggestion was always just being to look for the animals. Um, I know other people connect things along various lines, but I also think that some of their connection sometimes is, um, is a stretch that's based upon personal belief. So, uh, having studied religion myself and, and being in a marriage where there's two different religions in our marriage, you can see how somebody's um, world perspective through their, you know, their, their, their spiritual belief can be different to yours naturally in, every, in all the same situations. You interpret things differently, and that's in our culture. And now religion is received in, in this culture, the West, we're likely to, to put spiritual, supernatural meanings onto things we don't understand. I'm not saying there is no supernatural, I'm just wondering sometimes how often, you know, um, the big that we see becomes like a ghoul or a ghost or some paranormal portal jumping entity. Um, you know, and as far as UFO is concerned, I don't essentially doubt it, but I don't have any opinion on it. I know people have seen things in certain areas. Canic Chase is a big one. People talk about a lot, isn't it? You know, these the multitude of, of different creepies um, being witnessed in that area seems to be, a, um, you know, it seems to be quite significant. But I, I don't really know what these other things are, and I, I haven't looked into a particular opinion. I I think that as we we mentioned a little bit about Beckham's Bigfoot, I think that the, people always say about witnesses. No, I look at it this way: if you have a hundred people come forward, eighty percent of them can be dismissed. They say um, they might have mistaken identity, uh, something like that, as an example. But there's always going to be twenty percent that you cannot dis discredit very well. Sightings. Um, some people have said it's actually in the thousands, but there's about 1,100, give or take, on the um, Loch Ness sightings register. If 1% of those sightings is, is real, is accurate, that's still enough. If 10 of the sightings are real, it's enough. Um, and that's what we're talking about, really, is, is, is a real question. 
I think with the Magnus sightings, for example, remarkably similar to one another all the way along. And then you get like Champlain and Algo Pogo and like Pinky and all these masses of lakes. I and mean, even the ones around the UK, like Teggy and the Bone Nessie and, and other things like that, Bachmora. And it tends to be, <clears throat> you know, more or less a, a variant of description to the same kind of animal. This long neck thing is a regular feature, right? It's not always thing, but it's at least a regular feature in all of the lakes that have sightings. And we don't have a good monster imposter that really stands in for a long neck, do we? Deals can't do that. Sturgeon can't do it. Seals, grey seals might have a bit of a long-looking neck from time to time, but it's hard to get close up on a seal and not realise that it is a seal. Uh, I saw them saying I was swimming under the surface in the sea, and um, even there it was quite easy to see what I was looking at from you know, from uh, a vantage point on the beach and also seeing it as a shape in the water. I just don't think, personally, that we've got a good enough monster poster to, um, to uh, exclude the late monster sightings that we have in this country uh, as anything other than an unknown creature that's um, either um, not yet discovered or believed to be extinct. Yeah. The last time we talked, you said something about that you were trying to look into doing a, a documentary or a TV television show or something like that. <laughs> I like the concept of the idea. I think it's got potential. I mean, I know sometimes you could, some people go out and make it themselves, like a self promotion, but that's very difficult to do. Some great things out there. People like Seth Breedlove are making um, uh, 
uh, Bishop Bray Road and, you know, Northman upon Pleasant and great um, cryptic movies like that. And he's doing all from Kickstarter, but he's got a particular talent for this. And he works, I met him actually, and he works excessively hard at it. Um, and he's really um, on the ball about raising funds or getting it. He's a director himself, of course. And he's done incredibly well. You can find them all on Amazon. They're, they're fantastic. But um, I'm not quite in that position. I do believe it probably needs a, a network treatment of some kind. Uh, I just hope if somebody does take it on, it'll be, it'll still be, um, it'll be entertaining but honest. That's what, that's what I'm hoping for. Well, as, as I say, it's, it's that's what I found by doing podcasting. Because I started it that reason because I can talk to people like yourself, and then get your people like you out there. And other people can listen and thinking, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. That kind of thing. That's what I, because I I, 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 like cryptozoology. Because yeah, that's the first thing I got involved in through John Downs and that. And and obviously I'll get pulled more to the paranormal side now because that's what, what I seem to be covering more of. But I I find more that the since they've done this um. New um, data protection law. It's harder and harder to find out information now. No, I think you're right because of um. I mean, from the paranormal side of things, worldwide, it is definitely ufology something's harder to find out genuine information because it's so well known that you have a, a greater amount of um fakers or I'd say attention seekers attached to it. Um, and I think that's that's a difficult thing. With cryptozoology in Britain at least, especially the Bigfoot thing, it is so unknown that most of the witnesses we encounter they don't even know the name Bigfoot. They'll say something like, Oh, it was like a big orangutan or two legs with a flat face, with a hairy and muscly all over or a giant chimpanzee walking about, but it was like a man as well. So those are great descriptions. You get a great first-hand experience there because the person's not expecting to see it. It's also unaware of the phenomena because it's not big here. Similarly, with non-Loch Ness-related sightings of lake monsters and sea monsters, they can be quite genuine, although, of course, you know, the papers pick up all kinds of bits and pieces um, of flotsam and jetsam to, to display their news articles. If I was into the paranormal thing, if I was into the ufology thing, I think I'd be having a much, much harder time looking at sightings. And I know now when I go to, to the North America uh, book, uh, much of it will be based upon my talks with researchers in the different areas, the different uh, sort of lakes and forests, and, and people who are staked in those areas and, and what they found out, because I know finding witnesses is hard, and probably, you know, not being from that area, a lot of the witnesses I find might not be that genuine, because essentially they'll probably end up finding me. That's not always, it's not an exclusion, but it's not always a great um, validation, you know, for the person. And I tend to say, oh, it's possible, 
then that covers that. You know, I don't obviously. I, unless I've experienced it myself, and I, and if I did witness something, I would report it. I, I, I wouldn't. Even if someone said, "God, that man's an idiot," or in that case, I would go ahead and I would go ahead and report it because I think, well, I know I saw it and I know what I believe, and I would put it out there. It's a turn in trouble with this validation. It's, as you say, it's up to people whether they believe it or not. Because I, I, I don't like the world of, world of fakery, but unfortunately we have it. But um, I don't honestly think there are honest people out there. And I think, like you say, in Britain, I think because it's more underground in the, America as such. I think that's why we find it more difficult to talk about it. I think I think you've probably found a great difference between cryptozoology how it's treated in America than it is over here. Well yeah, I mean they've got more people. I think they're less conservative than we are generally speaking when talking about these kinds of things. But even a small crowd over there is much bigger than a crowd over here. I I think um I don't know many British cryptozoologists that do not work a regular job that can, you know, devote themselves full time to studying and researching and writing or making films or whatever. Because it's it's not really that, that big here and I think it's it's a, a very, very fringe science. Like I said, the paranormal side of things that seems to be very big in this country and then ufology next to that, you know, also it's been popular for a long time. Cryptozoology, it's, when I post things on my Facebook page, to be honest with the, the most responses I get to anything is a big cat post. If I put a big cat post out, I'm going to get 20, 30 responses, all different types of opinions. But if I put something up saying, this is a blog about some big monster or some big exciting somewhere, you might get one or two replies, but normally there's not a lot of feedback. I don't know if that's because people are more... somewhere 
um, and they have an accidental sighting, you know, something like that. It's never, I was out in the woods looking for Bigfoot when I saw it. And, and I think that possibly, possibly uh, points to the fact that, you know, animals are not their environment, know when they're being hunted, essentially, so they, clever ones anyway, so they will move away from us. And all the other sightings are accidental. The same with the late monster sighting thing. Average sighting tends to be between, you know, eight, eight to ten seconds. And that's hard to get any footage of something like that. There are longer ones, of course, but it doesn't tend to be that long most of the time. Um, and it's not like it's approaching people. It's not like it's coming up, you know, basking on shore. It's clearly a creature that's either nocturnal or likes to stay away from people. I think that's a wise move. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, when I'm out there in the woods, if I'm out there at night, or even in the daytime, most most of what I'm worried about, it's not like I might run up on a bigfoot or something, is that I might walk up on a big cat, you know, a wake up or something like that. I might accidentally walk up on a big cat and be the unlucky one, first one to get attacked or something like that, because they're out there. That's, you know, we've got tons of bits of footage of the big cats. We know people let them go in the 70s. And, uh, you know, the reports are so numerous, it just seems like a full-blown conclusion. I know it's not proved, but... I, I live, well, as you know, because I live in Devon, I, I live on the Devon and Cornwall border, so I've got the Beast of Bodmin and the Beast of Dartmoor. So I, I hear, often hear lots of reports about big cats. Where's, um, uh, uh, where's St. Austell in, um, the location to you? How far away is St. Austell? Oh, about 60 miles plus. Okay, okay, because they had a few lion sightings. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, there's, it's amazing. It's like, I, I like um, looking at mutant rats, and I found that the, um, I think it's a, tub, I can never pronounce the name, to, um, the big, like, looks like a giant hamster. Chipposas. Uh, it gives it. It gives, it gives it a C. Oh, I can't remember the name. If I looked it up, I, I can't look it up because I'm talking to you. No, I don't know that. Anyway, anyway, they, 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 um, it's like mink. Years ago, I when I was living in Essex, there used to be mink farms, and they released them oh, yes. into the environment. Yeah. And of course, unfortunately, yeah. they are nasty little creatures at the best. Yeah, the best. Oh yes, there's definitely wolves in the UK. Yes, there's definitely wolves. Oh no, they're not voles. I think the mink eat voles. Oh yeah, voles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes, yes. Unfortunately, yeah. Or ratties. If you're if you're a fan of um, toad, 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 who? Vole is ratty. Yeah, no, I know it looks very ratty, but I mean, they're quite rare out there, lots of them, and, um, uh, you know, I, I know the mink have decimated most of the population. It's, it's one of those things, and we've got a long history of that. I mean, I was looking up uh, rabbits uh, when I was writing the book, and, yeah, the Romans brought rabbits, you know. We didn't have rabbits before. We had one type of hair, I think, that was uh, natural to the country, but we didn't have any rabbits. And, uh... You know, what have we got now, like 34, 35 million rabbits in the country, estimated, of course. Um, uh, that, that was the estimate I found online, I think it was 33.73 million. I don't know how they came to that number. 
so it was based upon one particular area that they examined and built a statistic on. Um, yeah, we didn't just have rabbits and pets over, you know, it's, it's 2,000 years nearly since they came, but they're not native. And I think these are animals in years to come, like the big cats. 50 years from now, it'll just be a fact that there are big cats in the countryside. Everybody will know if you're walking, you know, big cats, and be careful. The ball will spread all across the country again. And there's about 4,000 of them so far. And other things will, will become more prolific. I know there are wallabies in patches all over the country. Um, especially in the, the southeast of England here. And they're quite easy on the countryside. They don't do any damage. You know, they're a good animal to have around, but it's strange that they're here, right? And surviving in sustainable numbers. Well, I think the reason they survive is people forget that all animals evolve. And I think they, they adapt. And the next generation that is bred is like a... Uh, like the original one, but uh, like slightly modified. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, a lot of people put that question to me actually about the British Bigfoot, and they say, "Well, you know, we know in the Pacific Northwest the Bigfoot needs this kind of a habitat, or we, you know, we, we assume from the evidence we've got." I always say, "Well, wouldn't you expect that something that's always been here in this country would be adapted to our habitat?" And people don't think about that. You've got to have the, well, I mean, the Sasquatch is an assumption anyway in the Pacific Northwest, but an unproved assumption, but they assume that that environment has to exist here for a similar creature. And I'd say, no, surely, you know, um, these animals vary slightly from environment to environment, you know, and even in appearance, like um, polar bear, <coughs> polar bear, grizzly bear, uh, barrier black bear, moon bear, panda, some bear, they're all bears, essentially, aren't they? They all have the same bear kind of makeup, but they look different. And they have different body sizes and appearances and, and things like that. And I think that could be the same with these um, uh, Bigfoot-type creatures. There are at least uh, reports. I was very uh, thankful, actually, to receive a copy of two of Jeff Meldrum's pamphlets when I was in... Um, when I was in Maine at the conference, and he's, you know, he's a an Ohio, he's a tenured professor. This guy, he's taken this big risk with his career in writing up, uh, in studying these animals and appearing documentaries, but also in you know in writing up what he's written. And one of them was called Sasquatch Yeti, and the moment of the world, I, th- I thought it was terribly interesting. And when he was at the conference, he did uh, talk about 50 years of the Patterson Gimlin footage. Was 51 years then, but that was the title of it. And in there, he, you know, he showed the paddy footage and um, he showed other evidence of his research. And his uh, pamphlet here, Wellman, Sasquatch Yeti, and the Wellman of the World, opens with Wellman of the Woods, the European Wellman. He immediately goes to the Green Man of Medieval Europe and the Wars and things like that, and say, which indicates essentially. Well, as you please say here or not now, that these ancient depictions are of some form of this same creature, which is you know, seen around the world as the, um, the, the Yeti or the Captar, it's a Palasia, Sasquatch, the Yaren in China, you know, the Arang Pendic, which is a lot smaller, and, and things like this. And I think it's, it's interesting that there are reports all around the world that, that are similar to one another. 
not just in the, the way they look, but this behaviour. So the blood will report to you again that they'd left a bad smell behind it or that it was heavily muscled and um, had this flat face on them, you know, on an ape-like face, but flat, like a different separate nose and a mouth like a human. Um, you know, that it, kept, it always looks over its shoulders, it's leaving or, or things like that. You know, it has these strange habits. Um, tree peaking and other things that are very similar to other stories around the world. And especially with our witnesses who don't know anything about Bigfoot, to even say the word, how is this entering their mind if it's all made up? I know some on the fortune side say, oh, it's paranormal. But I think that's rubbish because all the descriptions of this describe an animal, and young ones and old ones, there's they seem eating, they seem checking people out, allegedly building things and moving around. I think the paranormal um, proposition there is, it's like saying this thing is, has existed uh, beneath our very noses here in this country and it kind of breaks our ego to think we could have missed it. So if we make it paranormal, the argument's over, it's done then. No more investigations, over, it's paranormal. You know, so don't just leave it. Um, but personally, believe that. You know, I believe we could exclude whether something that looks like an animal is an animal first or not. And then, if we find different, we find something else is, is the case. And it's paranormal, then, yay, let's go for it, you know? Find the portal, etc. But, um, yeah. Just a big, interesting subject. Sorry for the rant, but... <laughs> no, 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 that's what I like. I, but, uh, I like the fact that... I, I know people say, oh, no, no one, one cryptozoology says, oh, the same theory, but different versions of the same theory. But like everything, yeah. all theories is debatable. It should be yeah, like... Exactly. A, 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 I mean, but that's why... If you, someone says, oh, well, I, I think he's... I don't believe his cryptozoology much as I believe that cryptozoologist. But it's all debatable. It's all with a, it's all in the same vein. We're all talking the same sort of language but in a different way. No, I mean I don't have no um I've no issues with the, the theories at all and, and that's one of the things um, at the beginning of my book actually at the end of the introduction I do say, you know, I have to look at it after everything that goes into it as a lot in the research you have to look at it as a, a work of passion and not academia um, being ready always to you know, chew the meat and spit out the bones because of course these are theories on things that haven't been proved yet and they're my theories and I could be wrong I'm likely to be wrong actually but it's just what I've discovered or what I think so far and um, yeah, many of my, my colleagues would um probably agree with that, you know, that we're just putting forward a proposal, you know, about what could be. And apart from that, until something turns up, until somebody gets something, thanks, something um, that could be accepted, that could become the new Kraken, the new giant squid. Um, I hope it's uh, an SE style animal or a big community than anything else. Then we'll never know. It'll just be, you know, us fringe, weedy guys in <laughs> conferences and talking on the radio about stuff that we, you know, we think is true based upon the anecdotal evidence, but we've got really no idea whether it is or not. Yeah, but a lot of history itself is based on anecdotal evidence. There's a certain big book that's been written that's thousands of years old, 
That's based on their dental evidence. Well, it, 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 it's more of a religious book. I didn't want to mention it. <laughs> the Bhagavad Gita is a religious book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you know, we, but. I'm just teasing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, this, this is, um, this is, of course, you know, um, even first-hand evidence, as you see in many stories in the Bible, um, is still just the the sayings of certain people. So, in for many people, uh, um, even if Jesus did it right there, and then you or Mark were standing on the side and wrote it down, that's just still what Mark wrote, right? Mark actually Range wrote when he saw something. We still can go back and say, well, that's Mark's opinion, even though he was a witness. It's about credibility. Who do we believe? I think it will always come down to that. And once I get this evidence, this final evidence, there will be people saying, it's not really a real animal and these scientists will get you know, thrown to the dogs for a certain amount of time and hopefully one day it'll come out and we will stop being afraid of you know finding these things and it will upset our theories or our philosophies on life which i think a lot of it is to do with that it has a lot of people especially with this messy thing you know if it's um if it's a giant version of telling monstrum this tiny little uh, slug-like creature that existed, literally existed millions of years ago, basically. It's a giant fish in one of those, and nobody cares. But if it's a place so it should have died out 65 million years ago, but that's another story altogether. And a few apple cards will be wrong if that's the case. Now, I don't see why that should be the case, because you've got to see the camp, they accepted that. Seven, was it 60 million years without the fossil? Didn't they find a fish some time ago that was meant to have died thousands of years ago? I'm sorry? Didn't they find a fish some time ago that was meant to have not, not exist and, and uh, um, was not meant to have died thousands of years ago? I, I, can, me- I can remember reading about it. I think so. Yeah, now that was probably millions of years, 65 million years without a fossil, and there they are, you know, living uh, just off uh, Africa or in the Indian Ocean somewhere, Indian Indian Ocean, hundreds of them, they found uh, uh, horseshoe crabs. I mean, actually, they're a real nuisance in uh, Florida and some areas every summer. There's horseshoe crabs that look exactly the same as the Looking up about old when they find new fossils, 
and all the different new theories about dinosaurs. Now, they didn't have feathers. No, they did have feathers. Did they? They had colour, but they didn't have colour. Uh, I think, but basically, in this, we weren't around, so we can't, we, we can't, we're just, we, we've seen the skeletal evidence, and we've based our, what we believe they look like on the skeletal evidence. What about this Albertosaurus they found recently? That, um, I think it's a, uh, not Albertosaurus, sorry, uh, not, not a saw. Uh, another saw that they found in Canada that actually had its skin preserved in amazing detail. And you can see it looks, it looks a bit like an ankylosaur, I think, and it, it's got this amazingly bumped, rich skin, and it's perfectly preserved. You can see the head and skin and everything. Awesome. So now we know a bit more um, <coughs> about, about, you know, about the way this type of dinosaur looked was before we just had the bones and the assumption of what the covering looked like. So they're finding more and more things. Um, it's just, I think it was 2017 actually they found it, and it's, it's one of these amazing things. I think we'll just keep finding more and more, and it's important for people like the to remember that what we know as fact right now is just the pervading paradigm. It's, it's in fact, it's not the, the whole truth. It's just the truth as we know it at this point. That's all it ever is. And, um, you know, pending further evidence. Well, early man is being found. What we we've did, they found one um, that wasn't meant to have been around earlier than full, wasn't it? Like 10,000... Yeah. More years earlier than man was thought to be around. It's it's always stuff like that. It's always things like that. And then you know things get rearranged a little bit, and you go back, and sometimes there's an explanation, and sometimes there isn't. Just gets incorporated. That's fine. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I mean, I try to in the book steer away from you know because the argument always tends to go down to the sort of um, materialism. Uh, point or the creationism sort of argument. I try to stay away from both of them because I know once you go down either route, regardless of what you believe about either one, that's it. You lose half the audience on either side. And my book's not really about that. It's about looking for non-animals. You know, so if you fall down either one of those pathways, it's an issue. But my issues with the fossil record is uh, simply to say that um, these living fossils and whatnot that we've already proved that animals oh. can still be living, regardless of the theories behind it. And therefore, that doesn't stop me from believing that Nessie and, and friends could be some sort of plesiosaur. Um, that, you know, the exclusion of they should have died out no longer applies when we find other things that died out still living. Now, if so many people listening to the show, would you like to give them a link to the, where they can find your wonderful book? Oh, yeah. Uh, so if you go on uh, Amazon.co.uk, you can find my book. I just type in Beasts of Britain. There's a paperback version and a, a Kindle version, which is a lot cheaper. Or if you use um, uh, Kindle Unlimited, it's completely free, actually. Um, so that's a great place to have it. Really exciting to get that things off, of course. You know, as researchers, we don't really make that much money, so there's also a piece of Britain t-shirts on Amazon. You can just type in the name, it should come up. And um, you can find me, you know, on the regular things, Facebook and Twitter, by typing in Beast of Britain. And I'm always very, very happy to speak to anybody, especially if you have a sighting.
Yes, that's very important. If you're ever sighting people and you think it may be genuine, have a little chat. And nothing will be mentioned or published unless you're willing to... Uh, oh, of course. Completely, um, completely, um, um, I respect everybody's privacy and, and definitely won't publish anything without your say. So even if you told me to tie sighting, and I usually will uh, send everybody what I'm going to write about it to get their final approval before I publish anything. So that's the final stage as well. I've written this about your sighting. Can I still publish it? And that's 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 my my general rule for anything I, I put in there. I think it's a very important rule to have. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sometimes you can just say, Mr. B said, da 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 da, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. If it's in a newspaper, you'll fake game. But if it's um, if you've given it to me personally, I would definitely um, get your final editorial approval on anything that I publish. Well, hopefully one day I may see something. I'm, I'm always willing to think I may end up seeing something. I did see a strange wasp once when I was in John Down's back garden. We saw, I found that this wasp, it, I think it's an Asian wasp, but I'm not too sure. It was huge. Yes, another one, very large, right? Very yeah. Large, very yellow and black. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not confident it was because I'm not an expert on um, insects or such, but it was... It's exceptionally large wasp. It wasn't a normal wasp. I could tell the difference between a normal wasp and an abnormal wasp. Yeah, I think this is called the Asian hornet. Oh, yes. Um, we got more of them, apparently. We had a... Did you say you're, you're in Somerset, did you say? Uh, I'm in Devon. So they're very, very well known in Somerset, apparently, and that kind of area. So you're just above there, aren't you? Anyway, um... Yeah, I can see it now. It's very sort of orangey yellow, very large. Probably the apples. Probably the sugar from the apples. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But you see, that, that's another animal. It's the wasp. I did a little podcast the other day because wasps are underrated because people don't like them because they think they don't do nothing. But they, yes. they are actual predators and get rid of the nasty little insects that we don't need. Oh, but what was my, my podcast was called Wasp. We're not the bad guys. I mean, just their way of saying, look, mate, look, I want a bit of that, you know. Yeah, give us, give us your apple. I'll sting you. <laughs> now, is there any other products you've got in the pipeline that you want to mention, or are they just in the idea of your head at the moment? Well, Uh, and talks and uh, appearances 
courses and I want to do universities and, and schools and things like that as well. So universities and schools, official conferences, but also small talks. I'm kind of literally just trying to step over to doing it as more of a full-time thing. So I'll be putting that ad out. And again, if, if you hear that and you're interested in having me come to your town or to your group or whatever, and, you, and give a talk on a piece of Britain, I'd like to do that. And again, go to facebook.com forward slash of and, and talk to me. And I'd be happy to, to, to make the arrangements. He's not a bad trip. He's quite, uh, quite available. As you know, we he he's very good at talking. I'm all right. I, I'm friendly enough. If you get me face to face, I'm a quite friendly guy. <laughs> and it, I, I imagine sometimes it's hard to put everything in with a family life as well. I just you know what I've got um, I've got uh, fibromyalgia and CFS, chronic fatigue, and um, part of my life not slowing down is because when I slow down I'm actually able to do less so even though I'm kind of always completely exhausted I'm always running on this empty battery that says if you stop doing stuff or if you slow down you will not be able to do go back to doing it as much as you do so just don't ever stop moving so actually most of the time I just always make sure I'm moving and, and doing something all the time or writing or walking or getting out into the woods to stop me from kind of seizing up, you know, I guess is what I experience. I do have these days when um, I just crash or I lie down on the floor for a few hours, but generally speaking, I'm normal days. Like, that's my philosophy. Don't stop, don't ever do less, otherwise you will not be able to do more anymore. Uh, so, yeah, sorry, big, long explanation about silly illness and things like that. But well, that's important to mention, because I, I think people forget, I think people... Don't realise it's better to treat a person as a person and not the illness. No, that's it. I mean, I'm just uh, explaining uh, as to why um, I'm so busy. One of the reasons is I don't want to slow down. Um... I, I believe that as well. I'm a great believer it's easier to give up than to keep going. Oh, much much easier, actually. But not in the long run. In the long run, giving up is much harder. Um, because you have the, the, the missed opportunities and the, um, you know, uh, you don't have such a, a full life because you didn't try things. So I would say go for it. Go for whatever you want to do and fail. Failing is absolutely fine. But don't, don't not, as uh, a double negative, don't uh, not ever try. <laughs> um, don't, don't stop trying. You know, if you've got something in your mind and you think you could do it, go and see if you could do it. And if you couldn't, Okay. Right now, um, we're coming to the end of the show, Andy, and um, I'd like to say thank you for being my guest today. I'm going to do a little bit of a new sign-off for you. Are you ready? Yes. <clears throat> thank you, Andy, for being on my show. We talked about a piece of Britain, you know. Please look him up. He's a great chap to have at your school or club. He makes a great chat, and that's 
And I'd like to say thank you. Good night. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That's no problem.